Amen. Thank you for your good singing today. Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 3. Back this past December and January, we uh, preached through Luke 1 and 2 as part of our series Getting Ready for Advent, or as part of Advent. And uh, now we're picking up at Luke 3 today. It will take us through the fall and into the winter at least. In the first two chapters, Luke shows a contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus himself. And he did that in a variety of ways. He started by highlighting John being prophesied by the angel Gabriel. And then, um, and, and, uh, the, then the subsequent conception of John by his parents in, in their old age. Then uh, the angel's promise and subsequent um, conception of Jesus. Then in the second part of Luke 1. Then the birth of John and the response to that at the end of chapter 1. And the birth of Jesus and the response to that in chapter 2. And here we are in chapter 3 in the beginning of John's ministry. So we've had this back and forth. And pretty soon all the attention is going to go to Jesus. But for now we're looking at the beginning of John's ministry. And in this passage John himself is going to tell us that Jesus is way bigger, way better, way more important than John himself is. And so he tells... God's people then, who are there hearing him, to turn to Christ in humble repentance. So how should we live in light of the first coming that Luke 1 and 2 tells us about? The first coming of Jesus? And how should we live in preparation for the second coming of Christ that we've sung about in many of our songs today as our conqueror? This passage, Luke 3, gives us a good answer to that. So I'm going to read Luke 3, verses 1 through 20. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, And be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, 
I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. A few years ago, I was listening to local news and the local sports report, and they played a clip of an interview with a local athlete who had recently come back from a suspension. He had been suspended by his own team because of a domestic abuse situation in his life. He had uh, been abusing his wife. And uh, so this was his first press conference after the suspension. It's his opportunity to try and explain himself and try and win back the fans and and this sort of uh, public rapport. And in this, uh, in this interview that they played a clip of on the, the sports report, I was struck by, uh, by really two parts. One was it sounded like everything he was saying was just memorized and was pretty cold, and it, sounded, it was hard to believe that it was totally genuine. The second part, though, was that the words he said, forget the tone and the presentation, but the words he said also fell flat. He basically said, I'm really sorry, and... I'm doing the best I can to change myself. Those were some of his direct words. And I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding. Like, this is pathetic. This is the best you can say in this situation. I'm doing the best I can to change myself. And the problem with those words, for us as Christians at least, when we hear those words, is the impossibility in changing ourselves. Look, this guy's problem, what he did with his hands toward his wife, that was a problem, but that was just the tip of the iceberg, right? What he was doing with his hands is not the real problem. What was wrong with his heart is the real problem, and he can't change that. Your problem is similar. Your biggest problem isn't what you look at with your eyes or what you say with your tongue. Your problem is in your heart, and you can do nothing about it Excuse me, yourself. Our problems are far deeper than anything we can solve on our own. And so in this passage in Luke 3, Luke clearly lays out for us from John the Baptist what our real problem is and what the real solution to the problem is. The problem is our hearts and our lack of repentance in our hearts. The solution is Jesus Christ himself. People were saying to John, in light of everything he was saying, Oh, you must be the true Messiah. Are you the one we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years? And he says, no, no, don't look at me. Look to Christ. He's the true Savior. Turn to him in humble repentance. And in this passage, John, really Luke lays out three truths that John lays out for us. So I'm going to get confused, I'm certain. You're going to hear me say, John says such and such when it was Luke writing it and vice versa. So Luke is conveying the message from John. So let's just make that clear right here. But what is this message? First of all, that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. People have been waiting for the Savior, for the Messiah, for hundreds of years. In fact, this quotation that 
that we just read a few minutes ago in verses uh, 4 through beginning of verse 6 are from Isaiah chapter 40, which was written close to 700 years before John was preaching it, was proclaiming it here by the Jordan River. And so even before we get to that quotation, though, what we see in verses 1 and 2 is that John's prophetic ministry in proclaiming that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, John's ministry is on God's timetable. John came into the world at exactly the right time in exactly the right place. In verse 1, Luke lists off all these rulers who were uh, ruling over, all these authorities who were ruling over the region in which uh, John was ministering, John the Baptist was ministering. And we don't need to get into the details of each of these individuals' lives, but we can at least understand that Luke included this passage for at least three reasons. One is to show that John was a prophet. Where do we get that from? Well, for one, if you think back to, say, the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah, you often see these types of paragraphs where the author kind of situates what's happening in history, in a real time and in a real place. And so you think about Isaiah chapter 6, where we read, in the year that King Uzziah died, dot, dot, dot. And that's the same kind of statement here. In this year where there's this guy reigning here and this guy reigning there, and what it does is it allows historians to trace exactly when this was happening and where this was happening. And these are all real people. Uh, Archaeological evidence verifies these people were ruling at this time. And so this this truth shows us that John was a prophet because it sounds like what you would hear uh, in a prophet uh, prophetic message. Secondly, it was to show that John ministered in a real time and place, as I've already alluded to, and that's just like we do. We're ministering in a real time and a real place in God's plan that he has us living right now as opposed to 100 years ago or 100 years from now. He has us here right now to do real work for his kingdom in this place. And so just as John lived and ministered in a particular context, so do we. So this should be encouraging to us. And Luke is anchoring this situation in in history. And the third reason, I think, that Luke included this message was to show that John ministered in a day of ungodly people. If you do just a little bit of research about any of these people listed here in verses 1 and 2, you're not going to be super impressed. None of them were fighting the good fight of faith, so to speak. They were all ungodly people, just like the world today is led by ungodly people. It's ruled over by ungodly people. And so this passage reminds us that John came into a world filled with wicked people, just like the world that we live in. And this should encourage us then that John wasn't ministering in a golden age of, of ministry. Um, and neither, neither are we. It wasn't that people were especially receptive to the word of God when John started preaching. And people are not especially receptive to the word of God in our time of preaching as well. Verse 2 tells us that this is Um, that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. And so this this phrase that this is the son of Zechariah should take us back to chapter 1, which again, if you were here back in probably the last week of November, frankly, uh, of last year, you would remember that it was miraculous that John was conceived by a very old man and by his very old wife. Just like you have miraculous conceptions with Abraham and Sarah and with Hannah and, and her husband back in 1 Samuel uh, 1. So this was, this was recorded the way it was in Luke 1 to show us that God was bringing his plan into fulfillment, that God was keeping his promises, like we have sung many of God's promises to us today. 
And so we saw God's plan of redemption coming into plan, and this should uh, come into effect, and this should be re, um, you know, re- resurrecting itself in our minds when we see that John was the son of Zechariah, this idea that this was a miraculous event in the work of God. And then we have this phrase at the end of verse 3 as well, that this was the word of God that came to John. And why is that important? Because what it sounds like John is saying is pretty harsh, as we'll, as we'll get to in a few minutes. So it might sound like John's just this raging preacher who, you know, is just kind of unconstrained. No, what he's saying is the word of God. And this is what we need to hear then. John's not just going on a rant against wicked leaders, even though he could have done that. He's speaking God's words to God's people and calling them to repentance. This is not a man-made message that he's preaching here. So what is that message exactly? Verses 3 through 6, John's prophetic ministry fulfilled God's word. That's what we learn about his message here. Verse 3 says, He went into all the region around the Jordan. He's preaching all around the Jordan River in Israel, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And really, verse 3 is a summary of everything else he's going to say in this preaching message, the rest of this passage. It's telling us what John's ministry was characterized by, that he's calling people to repent. And repentance is a significant theme in the book of Luke. And how do we know that? Well, if you were to compare the, the message of the book of Luke with the message of the other gospel accounts, for instance. And remember that, that the book of Acts is also written by Luke. So you have a pretty long book in Luke and a pretty long book in Acts. And between those two books, Luke talks about repentance something like 25 times. I'd have to go back. I think it's 22 or 23 times. He uses the word repent or repentance. Matthew, Mark, and John, the other three gospel accounts combined, use the word or concept of repentance less than 10 times. So there's a pretty big difference between Luke's message and the other three gospel writers. So that tells us this is a pretty big theme for Luke. And, that this, then, and he's talking about this a lot. And repentance, then, we just need to be clear what we we're even talking about. It's an inward change that, uh, that comes about from our heart and our mind. Our heart is really a, a biblical way of describing our kind of our ruling desires uh, in our hearts, in our, in our spiritual beings. It's turning away from God. So it's a change of mind, basically. Turning away from sin to God is what I mean to say. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, in which you turn from sin to God. And so he's calling people to a lifestyle of repentance. He tells people to bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance. So live life as if it's flowing out of repentance, stemming from repentance. And he's baptizing them with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we need to ask ourselves this question of like, what is the connection between the baptism and the forgiveness? And I would actually say the connection is between the the forgiveness and the repentance, and then the baptism is connected to the repentance. So let's just unpack this. People are coming to John to receive forgiveness. They're recognizing the evil in their hearts. And John is saying, in order to be forgiven, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and turn back to God. The way you show that you have repented is by being baptized. That's what he's telling them here. And let me just give a quick parenthesis. This isn't in my notes, so I may forget where I was going. So bear with me. and Clayton, bear me out, uh, bail me out if I need to here, or somebody bail me out. Uh, what I was going to say is, the baptism that John's talking about is not an apples-to-apples comparison in the baptism that we celebrate you know, in this baptistry here. Okay, So just, I'll come back to that as we 
get into other passages about baptism, but this baptism is a way of evidencing that you have repented, that you have a heart of repentance, that you hate your sin and you love God. All right, our baptism as Christians is, involves that in five to ten other things. Okay, so that's where I was going to go with that. Uh, so this, uh, this baptism was not itself part of their repentance. It was just evidence that their hearts were turning toward God. Okay, it wasn't like when they went into the Jordan River, suddenly their sins are washed away. The water had nothing to do with washing their sins away. Their sins were forgiven because they had repented, and they're being baptized to show that they have repented. So this is for the forgiveness of sins. And, and let's just be clear. The need for forgiveness of sins is your greatest need, just like it's my greatest need. And it's the greatest need of every person you talk to. All right, this is why in our own country, millions upon millions of people went to Mass this morning. This is why this Wednesday, if I remember correctly, is Yom Kippur, and Jewish people in our region and all across the world will commemorate the Day of Atonement, the Day of Receiving Forgiveness from God. This is why people in India go to the Ganges River in an attempt to wash away their sins. People know inside of them, instinctively, I am guilty before a holy God. And I need to be forgiven. And this is what people are proclaiming when they celebrate the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or when they go to Mass, or when they go to the Ganges River to wash away their sins. But the Bible's answer to what can wash away my sins is different than all those answers. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this is what John is calling people to, is to turn in faith to Christ, the one who would come after him, he says. Forgiveness is the solution to this problem of sin in our lives. And it's provided by Christ. Even Shakespeare understood this in the play Macbeth when he shows Lady Macbeth trying to wash her hands of the guilt, of the blood on her hands. And she just holds up her hands and says, I can't get them clean enough. I have such guilt. Do you know what that feels like? Isn't it miserable to feel guilt weighing on you? But let's just be clear that guilt is a gift from God. Guilt is from God to push you toward him, to make you crave the forgiveness and the cleansing that only he can provide. So if you are feeling guilty today, don't try and numb it. Don't try and ignore it. Thank God for it and turn to Christ for forgiveness. <clears throat> Verses 4 through 6 give us this extended quote from Isaiah 40. And the other gospel accounts include this quotation in their accounts as well, but Luke's is fuller. Luke's is longer than those others for various reasons. I think I'll explain why in a second. I think in verse 6, I guess I can go ahead and say, verse 6 is a quotation. It's alluding to Isaiah 40, but it's also quoting Psalm 98, which is where we get the song Joy to the World, by the, by the way. <clears throat> and he says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I think he's including this sentence here because Luke makes such an emphasis on the fact that the gospel is for all people. It's for men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. And he's constantly throughout the book of Luke showing that the gospel is for all these people. So by quoting this from Psalm 98, and again the allusion to Isaiah 40 in verse 6, he's saying this gospel is for all of you who are coming to hear me here at the Jordan River. And so he's, he's showing that the, the coming of the Messiah is cause for turning from their sin to go ahead and, and prepare for his, for his arrival. This idea of 
make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight. All of these things are ways of saying, make it so that everybody can get to Christ as quickly as possible to receive the forgiveness they need. All right, so if the, if the mountains are up here and the valleys are down here, to raise the valleys and lower the mountains means that all of a sudden you have a flat plain. All the roads, instead of being winding and going around mountains, now can go straight to Christ. And he's saying, make it so that everyone can get here as fast as possible to receive this forgiveness because this is everyone's greatest need. Jesus is the long-expected Savior. That's what he says when he quotes Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 6, or 3 through 5 in Isaiah 40. Verses 7 through 14 is the heart of John's message. What he actually preached is in verses 7 through 14. And what he tells these people who are coming to be baptized is that Jesus requires a changed life. You can't just say, I'm sorry for my sin. You should say that, but you can't just say, I'm sorry. And then keep living however you want. There has to be some kind of change to show that your heart is bearing fruits. Repentance starts in the heart and shows itself with our hands and with our lips and tongues and with our ears and with our eyes and so on. Doing just a few outward changes is not enough. Kind of like pasting a a good apple to an apple tree, stapling it on and expecting that it's going to keep looking nice. No, it's going to fall off and rot and be disgusting because it's dead. So don't try and just clip on good works onto a bad heart. See your heart change by the grace of God and see your need for for God's grace in order to do that. So Jesus requires an entirely changed life of every person. Jesus, or or John here in verse 7, I should say, calls these people who have come to him to be baptized a brood of vipers. What in the world is a brood of vipers? All right, so let's just start with the word brood, which basically means like a family and vipers are snakes, so think of a family of snakes. Disgusting, I know. Uh, Clarissa's grandma lives on 200 acres. She owns 200 acres of pine tree farms in central Florida, so like close to nowhere you want to go in Florida, basically. And uh, if you want to go to Orlando or Tampa or Jacksonville or anywhere, it's three hours away from all of those places. And so she lives in this, in this sandy field, basically, surrounded by pine tree farms, and on that pine tree farm, they frequently see rattlesnakes. And so, you know, three or four years ago, one of Clarissa's uh, cousins, who lives in Florida, was at their grandmother's house. He was doing some work for her. And uh, he saw a six-foot-long rattlesnake. So he shot it. That's what you do, I guess, when you see a six-foot-long rattlesnake. And then he thought, huh, six feet, that would look really nice to have the skin. So I'm going to go take that guy home. So he went and picked it up, which I cannot even imagine doing this stuff. Um, and he put it in his cooler and then took it home back to Pensacola where he lives, Pensacola, Florida, which is also three hours away. And uh, he got it home and then he cut it open. Again, this is so disgusting, but I'm sorry. But he cut it open and there were 12 baby snakes inside. This six-foot-long rattlesnake was pregnant. And they were each about a foot long. And they were all dead because he had buried them all. I'm sorry for those of you who want to throw up in your mouth right now. And so... <laughs> All I'm saying is that's a brood of vipers, okay? That's a, that's a family of snakes. And John is calling them a family of snakes. So what's the connection? These people did not get to the Jordan River by, you know, wiggling their way across the ground. 
So what's the connection between snakes and these people who John's preaching to and calling them a brood of vipers? What's the connection? I would say it's their character. It's not their appearance. It's not they have scaly skin, marks on their backs. Anything. It's the way that they live. It's that they've come out to be baptized in a hypocritical way. They're poisonous. They're dangerous. They're deadly, just like snakes, just like a brood of rattlesnakes. And what's really interesting is that Jesus uses the same language later on. So, I mean, this is, this is Jesus is here, we find out in the next passage we'll preach next week, hearing this. And then later on, late in the book of Matthew, so a different passage entirely, Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Maybe he got that idea to call people that from John the Baptist. It's just an interesting possibility. But what he's saying is that these people are coming out to be baptized when you are being hypocritical. You are being like snakes. You're, being, you're poisonous, you're deadly, you're destructive because you're repenting in a false way or you're acting like you're repentant and you're not actually. And so another possibility of why John called them a group of snakes, a group of vipers, is just think about the rest of the Bible storyline and where do you hear about snakes elsewhere in the Bible? Well, I would go to Genesis 3. I mean, that's the first reference to a snake in the Bible is in Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3.15 and the verses following, you find out that everyone is either part of the seed of the woman, which is Eve, from whom the Savior will come, or the seed of the serpent. You're part of the enemy of God. And so basically what you find out is from that point on, human history is marked by enmity, by war, in, human, in the human race between those who follow God and those who follow the evil one. And as one point of connection there, that's what we read about in Psalm 1. You have the wicked who hate God, and you have the righteous who love God. Seed of the woman are those who are righteous. Seed of the serpent are those who are wicked. And so maybe John has in his mind, you are all like the serpent himself. And even 1 John, the Apostle John, who is different than John the Baptist, but the Apostle John makes a similar statement in 1 John 3 when he says, you are either a child of God or you're a child of the evil one. That's 1 John 3, about verse 3 or in verse 10, I believe. And so I think John is picking up on that idea, and he say, says that the wrath of God is going to come upon you because you are like the serpent himself. And he says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This wrath to come is the idea that the, the, the judgment of God coming upon those who hate God. And he says, the command he gives them is to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Let your life match up with the heart of repentance. Don't try and tack on good works while having an unrepentant heart. Don't say, well, I've repented in my heart and expect you can live however you want. Let your actions match your heart, is what he's saying. And then he says, don't make any excuses for why you would live an ungodly life, why you would live like a group of snakes. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And what they, he means by that is he's preaching to a bunch of Jewish people. He's in Israel. And they might be tempted to say, bro, we'll be okay. Abraham is our father. We're Jewish people. I mean, the Messiah is coming for us. And he says, yes, but if God wants to keep his promise to Abraham, which he does, he can just turn those rocks right there into children of Abraham. He doesn't need you. In other words, don't rely on who you are, on your family background, on your ethnicity, on any other external feature 
regardless of who you are and where you came from, you need to get right with God. And that's true for us as well. Whether you grew up in a Christian home, maybe some of us would say, well, look, Christian parents went to a Christian school, go to a Christian college or went to a Christian college and graduated from it. And we could go on and on. We said, these things show that really I love God. No, they don't. You can have unrepentant church members. You can have unrepentant uh, Christian college students, unrepentant Christian camp workers. You can go on and on. Bear fruits of repentance. Show your repentance by the way you live. And the reason we need this is because our hearts are so wicked, because we love ourselves so much, because we have such a high view of ourselves, not a low view of ourselves. Our problem is that we have such a high view of ourselves. That's why we need to repent. Several times over the last few years, I've read a book to our boys called The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. It's one of my favorite children's books. It's by Kate DiCamillo, and it's outstanding. And uh, we actually listened to the audiobook of it on our uh, recent trip out west, and this is probably the third or fourth time we've heard it in the last couple of years. And in this story, which is about a rabbit, a china rabbit, so he's a decorative toy for this girl, whose name I think is Abilene. Uh, I know that because I've heard the book so many times and read it so many times. She has a, a toy named Edward Tulane, a china rabbit, and she loves this rabbit. So she dresses it up every morning. Edward sits at the meals with her and her parents and grandmother. Um, she takes him everywhere she goes. But her parents did say, you can't take Edward to school. So when Abilene goes to school each day, she props him up in front of the window so that he can look out and see her when she gets home from school. And so in this story, what we read is that, uh, what we find out is that Edward is quite vain in his thoughts. The book says, of all the seasons of the year, the rabbit most preferred winter, for the sun set early then, and the dining room windows became dark, and Edward could see his own reflection in the glass. And what a reflection it was. What an elegant figure he cut. Edward never ceased to be amazed at his own fineness. And to that I say, I hope we don't do this, but when you look in the mirror, do you ever have the same impression? Like, wow, (laughs) look at me. I am so good looking. I just blow myself away every time I look in the mirror. I haven't ever thought that thought, but I assume that some people who are beautiful would possibly think that way. And Edward has these self-loving thoughts going on. And we have them too, in our own ways, right? Maybe we're not going to say it about the way we look, but, well, no one can hit a golf ball the way I hit a golf ball. No one can cook a soup the way I cook a soup. I mean, you could just find whatever you want to compare other people to and, and find, I love myself a lot. That's what you're going to find when you start comparing yourself with other people, just like Edward loved himself a lot. And so what John is calling people to do is to repent of those kinds of self-loving thoughts where in your heart, again, maybe you're trying to keep all that hidden a little bit so no one quite sees that's who you are on the inside, but in your heart, repent of those types of thoughts where you, you say, I'm the most important person. I, my opinion is the one that matters the most and people should listen to me more than to others. What we need to do when we repent is to get to those types of thoughts Not just the actions, but get down to the root thoughts. And we'll talk about that more right at the end. Verse 9 talks about the certainty of coming judgment. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The wrath of God will come. That's what he said in verse verse, uh, 7. The wrath of God will come. And this is why we need to be repentant in our hearts. 
And repentant change reveals itself through obedience. This is what we see in verses 10 through 14, which I'll just kind of briefly explain to you. In this passage, you have three groups of people, the crowds in general, the tax collectors, and um, the, t- the, uh, the soldiers, perhaps something like, like uh, police officers, basically. And each of these people come to him and ask him, okay, so we want to repent. What would that look like in my life? What should I do to bear fruits of repentance? That's the question they're asking him. What should we do? And what should we do to show our repentance? And what's interesting is all the answers that John gives, again, I'm just kind of summarizing here, have to do with being generous with what you have. And so in other words, one way to show a repentant heart and a repentant lifestyle is by being generous, by giving to others with what you have. If you have two shirts, he says, give one to somebody who doesn't have a shirt. If you have enough food, give some to somebody else, which is a good principle for us to remember when we take a picnic together in a few minutes. But in, in all of these cases, he's saying one way to show repentance is through very practical, hands-on ways. And the question that these people are asking is the question we need to be asking as well. How do I repent? What should I do, Lord? I want to repent and turn from my sin. What would that look like in my circumstances? And so we need to start analyzing what are the ways in which we love ourselves, in which we are selfish, and so forth. So verses 7 through 14, John is proclaiming to us that Jesus requires a changed life. And verses 15 through 20 give us the reason for this, that Jesus is the true judge. He's the true judge. This is why we should turn to him. And as part of his true judgment, we see that the judgment of Christ is perfect in verses 15 through 17. People were wondering out loud to John's face, are you the Messiah? And he's saying, no, I'm not the Messiah. For one, Jesus is better just as a person, he says. I'm not even, un- I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. You know whose job it was to untie the sandals of people who are important? So let's say here's the, excuse me, the important person. And you have some lower, 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 lower. Now we're down in the slave level. The high slaves, medium slaves, low slaves, lowest slave. That's the person who should take off the nasty, stepped-in-the-manure kind of shoes off people's feet. And John says, okay, so if that's the lowest person, I'm lower than that. I'm not even worthy to do that job for Jesus. This is like someone saying, so let's just, I don't like it, but let's just say LeBron James is the most important basketball player in the world. Who's responsible for cleaning up his nasty, sweaty rags off the floor? The lowest of the low housekeeper guys. And it would be like someone saying, LeBron touched that towel? I can't touch it. I'm not worthy enough. And that's what John is saying about Jesus. I'm not even worthy to touch his nasty, dirty feet. And so he says Jesus is better just as a person. But he's also better in his baptism, he says in verse 16. I baptize you with water. Just water. But look at what Jesus is going to baptize with. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm going to talk about both of these briefly here. I realize I've been going into a lot of detail here, so bear with me for a moment. I think what he's talking about is two different kinds of baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism by fire. And essentially, baptism with the Holy Spirit is described in much more detail in 1 Corinthians 12. 
But when you think about what happens when you get saved, when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone as opposed to anything you could do or anybody else could do, when you do that, the New Testament has lots of terms of what happens at that moment. Okay, so let's just think through maybe three or four of them. You have conversion. That's basically what happens when you repent and believe. And at that moment, you are made alive by the Holy Spirit. John 3, Titus 3 talks about regeneration. A few other passages. You are justified. You're declared righteous by God. You are given grace to begin fighting sin. You're given spiritual gifts. We could go on and on, but one of the things that happens is baptism uh, of the Holy Spirit in which you receive spiritual gifts. You uh, are filled with the Holy Spirit. You begin bearing the fruits of the Spirit. All this happens through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is what happened at the day of Pentecost and what happens at the moment of salvation for all of us living after Pentecost. And so he says that the baptism of Jesus is better. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit himself unless you're unrepentant, in which case you'll be baptized by fire, he says. And some people assume that these baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism by fire are the same concept. I think they're two different concepts. And one reason is because earlier in the passage when he talked about fire, it was in a negative way. And then later in the passage when he talks about fire, it's in a negative way. So I think it makes sense to assume that fire here is also negative. In other words, you don't want to be baptized with fire. And so he, he gives this, this concept of, of baptism, that Jesus will baptize with fire. Uh, he says in verse 17, kind of a different metaphor for what's going to happen. If you're, in other words, if you're living a repentant life, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if you're living a repentant life, you'll be put in the barn in a, in a metaphoric way metaphorical way, you'll, Christ will gather his, the wheat into his barn. That sounds good. It sounds like eternal life, security, safety in Christ. But what's the alternative? Being baptized by fire and being chaff. Now, what's this winnowing fork that he's talking about? Maybe you can picture that famous painting where the guy's standing there with a straight face holding a pitchfork. That's basically what it looks like. And the winnowing fork would be used to to, you have this threshing floor and you're picking up the wheat and throwing it up in the air. This is outside. And the wheat is heavy enough that it's going to come straight back down. But the chaff, the junky part of the wheat, the worthless part, because it's so light, even if there's just a slight breeze, it's going to be blown away. And maybe you would think, chaff, that sounds familiar. Well, we just read about chaff in Psalm 1 earlier this morning. And what do we hear about chaff that the wicked are like chaff that are blown away. They are judged for their sin. And they, they are no longer with God. And so to be wheat is what you want to be in this context, in this uh, metaphor. And that's those who have repented and put their hope in Christ. To be chaff is to be those who are unrepentant and to be refusing to see their need for salvation. And so what John is saying is that Jesus is going to baptize people those who are repentant, baptize them with the Holy Spirit and bring them safely home into his barn, so to speak. These are all metaphors saying the same thing. And those who are refusing to repent are going to be baptized with fire and will be like chaff that are blown away just like the wicked in Psalm 1, verse 4. And now Luke, in verses 18 through 20, the very end of the passage, is going to give an example of what it looks like to be chaff, to be baptized with fire. And it's Herod. Now, you might think, that sounds familiar. Maybe this is the same Herod as back when Jesus was born, who was trying to kill Jesus and all the other babies in Bethlehem. 
It's not him. It's his son. It's a sweet family tree. Okay, you've got this dad who's trying to kill Jesus when he's a baby, and now you've got this guy who's killing John the Baptist. We'll find out he kills John the Baptist later in his son. And this guy is so nice that he actually married his brother's wife. Okay, this is terrible, in other words. It's a terrible family tree. Herod marries Herodias, which is his brother's wife. And John the Baptist said, you can't do that. You can't marry your brother's wife. You can't have your brother's wife. Even though Herod and Herodias would look very nice on wedding invitations, if we're, if we're honest about it. But there probably weren't any invitations. It was probably adultery. So what's the deal here? John is saying, Herod, repent. And Herod says, get out of my face. And he sends him to jail because of his message of repentance. And so Herod is like this chaff that's going to be blown away. He was wicked. He was seed of the serpent. He was a brood of vipers. And John, the righteous, suffered. In the hands of God, certainly, but suffered nonetheless. Let me talk through just a brief case study here of what it looks like for us to repent in real time, in real life. Let's assume that this weekend you got angry. You probably wouldn't be the only person in this room who could say that. So what should you repent of? Well, when I got angry, I kicked a bucket. Okay, you should probably repent of that. And I yelled at my kids. Okay, you should probably repent of that too. That's all. And I would say, no, 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 no. That's not all. Because where did that anger come from? It came from thoughts in your mind. Where did those thoughts come from? From your heart, from what you wanted and what you believed, your desires and your beliefs. What were you desiring? I was desiring to have a peaceful Saturday, and my kids kept kicking the bucket or whatever, okay? I'm making this up on the spot. Um, Okay, so that's what you were desiring. What were you believing? That I deserve a quiet Saturday. That no one should get in the way of me watching college football. This is what it looks like to really get below the surface. Yes, we do wrong things with our hands. We say hateful words with our mouths, but we do that because we're thinking certain thoughts. And we're thinking those thoughts because of what we believe and what we want. So what were you grasping for that you weren't getting? That's what you repent of. Because what you're saying is, God wasn't good when he gave me this circumstance. That is blasphemy to say that God wasn't good. The Bible says God is good all the time. So we repent of those thoughts that stem from the belief that God was not good or God was not in control. Those types of thoughts. So we need to talk to the Lord, not just about kicking the bucket, throwing something down, saying hateful words. We do that as well. We talk to the people involved. We ask for their forgiveness. We ask for the Lord's forgiveness. And then we say, Lord, also please forgive me for betraying what I believe about you in the way that I spoke in not getting what I wanted, not getting what I thought I deserved. Something we learn from other passages of Scripture is that repentance is a gift. And so perhaps one, thing, one way you can pray today is thank you, Lord, for the gift of repentance that you have given in my heart. If you have a heart of repentance, that is a gift from God. Another way you can pray is that God would give a gift of repentance to people you love, whether it be your spouse or your children or your neighbors, your parents, anyone who you think is currently 
unrepentant. Ask God to give them the gift of repentance and plead with God to give them the gift of repentance. The reason we don't have to bear the wrath to come that John proclaimed is because we are hidden in Christ, because Christ took the wrath of God himself when he suffered in the place of us, a brood of vipers on the cross. And so we give praise to the Lord for his atoning work, for being the true and better Adam that we sing about, the one who obeyed all the way to the end. But maybe as you've sat here today, you've thought there are parts of my life that need to be repented of. There are promises that the world is making to me that I'm believing, that I need to repent of believing. And what we need to realize is that the world can't save you. Technology can't save you. Even an iPhone, of all things, can't save you. Your family can't save you, can't stand before the wrath of God for you. Only repentance before this holy God will save you. And so, for all of you who are outside of Christ, who have never repented, we invite you to do that today. For those of you who are in Christ and can identify by the grace of God the areas of your life in which you need to repent, we urge you to do that today as well. And if you need help to put that into practice, to bear fruits of that repentance, please just talk to anyone here and let them help you. Let them walk with you as friends, as disciple makers, as you seek to be a disciple of Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we pray that you would give us fruits of repentance, but that those would truly spring from hearts of repentance. We're grateful for the forgiveness that Christ has offered us and for this beautiful message of hope that is given to us through John, even though it sounded harsh at at first. We're thankful that, that these harsh words were simply preached out of love and out of reverence for you and your ways. And so we pray that we would be like the righteous person in Psalm 1 who hates sin and turns away then from sinners and from those who scorn you and hate you. And may we walk in the way that you know, the way that you have planned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.